Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're going to play a little bit of catch-up. We're going to talk about sort of what we've been up to last couple weeks. Things have been a little bananas. Rob, I know you just moved back to the East Coast. Oh my God, welcome back. <laughs> you know, I, I know we missed a week there, but in our in our defense, I don't think we had a weekend last weekend. Yeah, there was no weekend. <laughs> <laughs> like, at what moment were we allowed to be idle? There was no idling. There was no weekend. There was no idle weekend. So we apologize, but it's, you know, sometimes, man, sometimes you just gotta, you gotta power through all the things that are going on. So you're back in Boston, which is exciting. Yeah, I got in really late last night. All right. All right. Um, And it is, it's totally culture shock. Um, This is, so it's, it's kind of a weird situation, right? Like I've been through a few moves in my life and I'm, I'm used to that. And the weird thing about this one a little bit is like it's I'm coming back to my like my real home, my real house, my my real life uh, in a lot of ways. But it all is just a little bit different. Uh, Sure. Everyone here is in a slightly different place than they were when I left. And also like uh, what used to be my office is now a shared office uh, with me and my girlfriend, which is which is fine. But it also does feel a little bit like when you come back from college, like sophomore year or something, and your room isn't your room anymore. You changed your room. Yeah. 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 Um, so it, it's definitely just this weird, um, you know, most moves, you're in a new place and you're, you're sort of starting from, from, from scratch or something, or, or you're at least starting a new chapter with the people you got around you. This is a weird thing where it's like, I sort of stepped out of the flow of my life and I'm trying to like step right back on. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just a, a weird feeling, uh, but it's been a weird year. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sure has. The last time I moved was a very difficult experience. And I know we talked about it a little bit. Um, we talked about games also that were sort of helpful for us feeling at home and feeling, you know, comforted and, and yeah. you're feeling a little blue. I'm for me, animal crossing has done that so, so well throughout my life, especially with my last move, I was in a bad place because I didn't I didn't want to go. I loved San Francisco. It, it felt like home in a lot of ways. And New York was exciting, but, you know, not home <laughs> in, in that way. And my girlfriend bought me Animal Crossing New Leaf, and I played it every day for months. I played it every day, and it just was so comforting. And, and it's it's the perfect playing house game because that's, that's what it is. It's you make a village, you make little friends, you talk to those little friends. Like that's the whole kind of point of the game. You're, you're trading things and that sort of thing, but it's a, it's a very chill game about making friends and being at home. And it's really nice and really sweet. And I, I'm wondering if you have something like that that's been sort of there for you during this particular transition. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's it's a very different sort of thing, but I've been playing a lot of MLB The Show 17. Sure, yeah. And this is a series that people have been praising the moon uh, for, for years. Like an, uh, like this about four or five years ago, a bunch of my baseball-loving uh, friends were like, this, this, is the, this is the shit. This is maybe the best sports game uh, out there. I don't know if it still enjoys that elevated reputation. Sure. Uh, it, it, you know, once a thing becomes sort of established and it gets taken for granted it's hard to get excited about those year on year changes. This is my first, uh, this is my first trip to the show yeah. as it were. So it's all new to me and um, it's completely rocking my world. Nice. And I think part of it is that going to what we were just talking about, what the show communicates really, really well is the feeling 
of baseball, which is this really deeply um, slow paced and like rhythmic and, uh, you know, relaxing game in a lot of ways until it, until it suddenly isn't those very yeah. high stakes. But there is something uh, I think maybe particularly if you're an American uh, that, you know, this like this truly is kind of the national pastime. Like even if you don't follow baseball that much or care about it, just growing up in this culture there, there's something about the sounds and feel of a baseball game that is really, um, welcoming it feels like home even if you're yeah. not in the sport yeah i i completely agree with you and i actually i played this game a little bit not a ton uh but a bit when it first came out a couple months ago and That's uh right. i even did a stream with with jorge who is the editor-in-chief of vice sports uh and he's a big baseball guy you know he he had been a, a reporter uh you know following the mlb for a long time and and he's also a pretty awesome softball player shout outs to, to jorge on the vice uh softball team he he He's cracked many a home run uh, in real life as well. Uh, and, and I completely agree. Like, baseball has always been sort of a way I've bonded with my dad. Like, it, and it feels very much like home to me as well. A, a ballpark, the, sound, the crack of the bat, you know, the sound yeah. of, the, of the arena of people who are excited and happy. Uh, even, like, the colors of baseball. I know that sounds a little weird, but, like, no. you know, the pinstripes, and then there's the, the very bright green grass, and then the... The plates, like everything about it, everything about baseball really does feel very comforting to me as well. And like a very, I grew up going to baseball games with my dad. Uh, we have a, the the Red Sox farm team basically is in my yeah. hometown, uh, the Pawtucket Red Sox. And like, I grew up going to those games my whole life as a, as a little, little kid. I always went to those games and, and then grew up and I still go to those games. My dad has season tickets and we go all the time when I'm in Rhode Island and you know, as a teenager, I worked at the ballpark, like selling ice cream and Dell's lemonade. Like it's a very, there's, there's so many things there that, that feel like a connection. So I completely, I completely agree with you when you're saying like, oh yeah, there's like this nostalgic hominess to this game and this, this very sport, you know? Yeah. And, you know, part of it also is that during my year in LA, the Cubs went on their uh, championship run. I saw a couple of their playoff games oh, against the Dodgers. Right. Yes. And so like in a year where I often felt very uh detached from my own life and yeah. where I was like it, it sort of existing out of time. Uh you know, catching those games with uh my old high school newspaper editor in chief. I was his ME, he was my EIC. Oh wow. Um so like getting to do that again was also sort of put me back in touch with with baseball uh, a little bit. I've been following it a little bit more. Uh, enough to be kind of baffled and concerned by the direction the Cubs season has taken. Sure. Has, uh, has taken. Yeah. But uh, so now I'm starting to, now I'm in a place where I can start to get this game. And the thing the show, so I, I'm getting into this by sort of dipping my toe into it. And the way I'm doing that is with the uh, road to the show career mode. Oh, yeah. And did you did you see much of this? When you I were, dipped when a toe in for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then I dipped a toe in enough to be like, okay, this is probably above my uh, my pay grade here as a as a very very new person who has not played a baseball game since the NES days. So, uh, but it, it looked really cool. It looked very interesting. Uh, so so do tell me what 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 do you do in this career? Do you start out as like a high school player? Do you start out as like you, a, a farm team player or? Yeah, you start out as a young prospect just out of high school. Okay, cool, cool. And 
so you create your character and what you think your role is going to be. And, like, you can give yourself a pretty central role. Like, I think you can be a catcher, in which case you'll be oh, yeah. uh, doing some fielding. You'll also, I think, be uh, calling pitches for the pitcher. Um, nice. And you can still get waved off, obviously. Um, <laughs> and then you'll be batting. I decided not to do that because I knew enough from the tutorial that, like, mastering the ins and outs of the fielding controls was going to be a little bit tricky. Sure. Uh, so if, like, I was playing second base, for instance, uh, I, I might feel a little bit at sea with some of the uh, fielding interface. So I went to the outfield and put, built myself uh, a sort of a slugger-type character. Yeah. And the great thing is uh, it lets you sort of digest this game in in chunks, right? Like, slowly... It starts teaching you like a little more about batting. You start understanding fielding a little bit better and the, the dynamics at play there. Um, but the other cool thing is that so while everyone else is moving to these really narrative career modes where you like are actually playing a specific type character, um, sort of the pitch uh, model, right? It's the you know you're you're the Jenny Baker of FIFA or whatever. Yeah, totally. Um, this is less specific, but it ends up I think working a little bit better. It's sort of portrayed as like a documentary crew following your career. Yeah, and and so like occasionally a narrator cuts in to showcase like these major like landmark moments in your career meetings with your agent uh conversations with the manager uh your first you know your first time uh into the majors uh yeah. is done with a whole bunch of pomp and circumstance so it ends up feeling a little more authentic and less like you're being put in these positions where it's like okay now for the story to progress you need to score three touchdowns in a single quarter um <laughs> yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel like that so it's a really it's a it's a really cool thing and the other thing that I'm really starting to dig is I mean just batting batting and pitching feels so good. Yeah, it does. Um <laughs> like something cuz when I played baseball games when I was a kid, they were <laughs> really cartoony. Like you could basically make those pitches like turn and stop and speed up in like midair. Uh, yeah. they, they were really ridiculous. I'm thinking back to like Roger Clemens or RBI baseball stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah. And here it feels much truer to how pitchers really operate, which is like very few pitchers have like a complete arsenal of pitches they can actually throw. Like, you know, every every pitcher has has their go to pitch and a few other pitches they're good with, but very few have like this full complete menu, and they certainly can't make the ball like turn midair uh you've actually got to sort of describe the arc of your throw but the really cool thing is when you're when you're batting it does a really good job on selling you on the illusion of like oh this is why a curveball is so hard to hit like you're watching it come in yeah you've got it framed up and you go to swing and somehow it passes like you know, six inches wide of the strike zone. And you're like, how the hell did that happen? Like, it literally a second ago, it was off to the left. And now it's way the hell outside. Uh, and you feel like an asshole. But in a really, like, fun way. Because it's like, oh, this is, this feels like, this feels like Major League Pitching. It's really hard to see the ball. And a lot of it is, like, anticipation and strategizing around what you know about the pitcher. 
and where they've been preferring to throw the ball, and then the weaknesses you've shown. It's really cool. Yeah, I, that's something I've always respected about baseball is how much of the game is hidden, sort of. It's like these these moments of really, really intense action punctuated by so much strategy and so much like going on beneath, you know, sort of beneath the obvious action. It's always been like really intoxicating. Once I actually started learning to score games and learn more of the strategy behind it, like my dad, you know, will take me to a game and be like, all right, and blah, blah, blah. This, this guy wants to do this. And now, all right, this guy has this. And oh God, it's always been really fun to sort of read that and sort of parse that, if that makes sense. And it, it's yeah. really cool. And that's actually sort of taught to you in the, the way you're saying, like in these like really digestible chunks of the game and actually sort of, all right, here's what you're ready for. Here's lesson one. Here's lesson two. It's yeah, pretty rad. Yeah. There's so many smart touches that like it, it, it totally, the way playing this game feels is like you are playing it with someone who really knows the game and is explaining it to you. Like oh, my favorite so baseball experiences yeah. is like when someone like your dad is around yep. to sort of like unpack the strategy behind what could just look like a dude throwing baseballs down the middle. Like, right. <laughs> and that's a really cool thing. So, like, when a pitcher goes to the plate, uh, when a ba- when a when a batter goes to the plate, uh, the pitcher gets a quick map of like where this hitter's uh, like sweet spots are and where they're cold. And so immediately you know, like, oh, this guy really can't hit low and away. Like yeah. he whiffs on all those pitches. But the thing is, like, the mental game immediately comes into play because he knows that as well as you do. And so, like, it becomes this, are you going to throw to his weaknesses? Is, are you going to be able to outguess this? And at a certain point, so the other thing is, what you're talking about the game being hidden, I think that's especially true because a lot of us who have played a little bit of baseball, uh, you know, from our little league days and stuff. Yeah. Until you get to a certain level... Pitchers can't do those tricks. They can't right. make the ball move on you. They can't make it disappear. And so, like, you just can kind of watch the pitch come in. And what this game sort of brings to life is that entire feeling of, you know, okay, so the pitch count is two and two. You've been pitching down and out, you know, each of the last, you know, each of the last uh, two pitches but your favorite pitch is a cutter to the inside. I think you're going to throw that. And so I'm going to be ready to hit that. And if you get that wrong, you can maybe re like, if your reactions are great, you can maybe correct if you get it wrong. But what I'm finding is like, you kind of need to have an idea of where that thing is likely to show up yeah, and just be able to make that decision of I'm going to swing on this or, uh, I'm going to try to chase the ball or I'm going to gamble that it's a ball and I'm not going to do anything. It's really, really cool. And then you see that play out over a game and it feels like you're getting a quick tutorial in like just all the dynamics of how baseball work, how pitchers interface with batters. Uh, Pitchers have confidence and energy levels and they'll just stop feeling good about a pitch and that will affect their performance. It's really cool. Oh, that's so awesome. All right, I need to dip into the career mode for real then, because I've just sort of messed around with the game for a couple of hours, you know, playing exhibition games and stuff like that. And I've I've also, like, <laughs> I've actually put it on sort of autoplay mode with, like, the most recent rosters yeah. and just, like, let it play in the background while I've done other things because I find baseball so comforting. Well, and the um, commentary is <laughs> really good, right? It like, is really good, yeah. 
Yeah, go like, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, it, it's just I have played a number of games and yeah, there's some like loops that get reused, but for the most part, it sounds an awful lot like a live commentary crew. Yeah. Like it's really shocking uh, how effective they've been with the contextual uh, commentary. Yeah. It's, it feels like the real thing, which I, I, that's the goal, right? That's what, it seems like that's what they've wanted to make for a very long time. And it feels, it feels real good. It feels very, very close. Occasionally, uh, I was playing with a friend just before I left LA. Uh, again, my, my old EIC. And yeah. so two things that where it did not feel like the real thing or where it felt so determined to be the real thing that it just kind of ignored what we were trying to make it do. Uh -huh. um, okay, so we definitely had a couple plays where we where we screwed up the uh, base runner interface, and there was one play where uh, my buddy had hit and had hit like a double, except he didn't make the second the guy on second base move. Oh no! And so the the the, the batter rounded first, headed to second. Stopped at second, and there were just two base runners just hanging out there. And, like, my second baseman catches the ball from the outfielder. And there's this, like, awkward pause as we realize the play isn't over. I realize there's two guys on the same base and just walk over and, like, tag one of them. Boop. Uh, and retire yeah. the side. Uh, that was embarrassing. The, the other thing, though, was that occasionally you'd throw a real dog shit pitch. <laughs> and... Uh, the pitcher you're using, uh, in his case, I think it was Clayton Kershaw, uh, was a great pitcher, would just kind of ignore the input you just made. And was like, you know, you were going to basically throw a wild pitch. I think I'm going to put this fastball, you know, straight on the on the lower inside corner, nice. uh, basically. And, you know, it's it was really funny because it was like, oh, the, these this game will only let you look so bad. That's so uh, good, yeah. And then it's going to be like, look, these professional ball players, uh, they're gonna they're gonna do their jobs even if you can't. Yeah, these guys know what to do. <laughs> so it's uh, that's sort of been my it, it, that was sort of my comfort food preparing for the move, and then it's definitely been the thing I've been playing a lot uh, since I got back. Yeah. I have to ask you, uh, now that you're living in Boston again, you've spent a lot of time in Boston, um, how do you feel about the Red Sox? Um, I, I like the Red Sox. I like, the, I like them especially as an institution. Like, sure. One of the things that I like about Red Sox baseball, I'm not sure this has been true of anywhere else I've lived, including Chicago area. You can acclimate to Boston pretty well and learn to talk to people in Boston just by knowing a very little bit about how the Red Sox are doing. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> and it's, so, religi like, it's religion in that city and yes. in all of New England, honestly. It is religion. So it's like, oh, can you say the, the religious thing? Can you say, oh, uh, yes, thank God. That's like, that's like saying, oh, yes, how are the Red Sox doing? How you doing? It's, it's exactly, it's, it's wonderful and weird. <laughs> Yeah, and so like I, I don't, I I I missed. So I can see where the Red Sox would have been really really annoying before they broke the curse. Oh God! And Red Sox fandom was defined by this long suffering, 
uh, Irish Catholic infused um, sense that the Red Sox were at once the pride of Boston, but also their very special cross to bear. Yeah. And that nobody else had anything comparable in terms of like a baseball experience. Like I definitely like when I first came to Boston, when I was like in my teens and visited for a little bit, like you could, it was palpable how much this city fetishized its baseball suffering. Oh, for sure. And I yeah. can see where people just got real over Boston baseball fans. Yeah. Yeah, that and the the racism of the fans. <laughs> that that has always also been like a pretty well, that, fucked up thing. <laughs> you yeah, know? I mean that's. I mean, but that's also sort of that's every a lot of things team. about yes, that's baseball, every baseball sorry. team, Boston, every Boston team, exactly. It's it's a a very unfortunate, and that's why it's worth bringing up that it's this really unfortunate thing uh, that I've always had complicated feelings about, and I'm I'm a fucking new englander like born and raised watched you know the sports of boston were the sports of my people you know very much like how are the patriots doing how are the red sox doing how are the celtics and how are the bruins doing like those are the things you ask yep. you know um and and care about on some level and i will always care about that on some level because that's where i grew up that's how i you know i talk to my dad about those things whenever i see him and so it's a little complicated that there's like this element of like, oh, well, there's also a lot of shitheads who who, <laughs> who like this thing. I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want to do that. That's not cool. I just want to see how this baseball team is doing. You know, I mean, it's no like it's a known fact, like among sports writers, like on Twitter, that people with like Boston team uh, avatars uh, or profile pictures tend to be like that that is that is a sign that like there's a good chance something bad is about to happen with yep. this person. Yep. Um and yeah, I think for like you know, there, for instance there was an incident not that long ago in the outfield yeah. at Fenway. Yeah. Uh and I forget the specifics, but uh it definitely involves racially charged abuse being yes. hurled at a player uh by basically what it sounds like was an entire goddamn section. Oh Jesus, yeah. Um and I think the thing that bugs me is when that happens and immediately there's this sort of rush to it's it's a very like not all men reaction to this stuff right where, like, yeah red sox fans like go fully like no true scotsman on the situation where it's like those weren't real fans they don't represent what boston baseball is right. all about it's like mm. it's like no that this is a very ugly and very real section of this fandom and ignoring that is not healthy or productive I mean, yeah yeah like <laughs> i mean if you've lived in boston for any length of time and you're into sports, you have for sure experienced the moment of whiplash where the person you're sitting at a bar watching the game with or something, and you bonded and you've talked a little bit about yourselves and all that shit. And so it's like, ah, America, like yeah. you know, guys being dudes, yep. uh, whether yep. you're a guy or not. Um, you, you have that moment. And then the next thing that's going to happen is that person's going to say something super goddamn racist. Yup. And I remember like there was this dude that I watched, um, you know, I, I met and we just ended up sort of watching uh, some Bruins playoff hockey together and the game went in a, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, over time. And we got along pretty famously. And I was like, you know, he's salt of the earth type. What a, what a great Boston experience. This guy's yeah. great. Yeah. Saw him again, not that, not that, uh, not, to, not too much later. And we were at a Mexican restaurant. And again, we're sort of watching the game. And uh, it's all going well, catching up and everything. And then sort of out of the blue, as like our fucking nachos are being delivered to her watching the game. Oh, man. He he takes in the re- he takes in the goddamn refried beans, and he was like, "Hey, hey, oh no, oh no! Why do Mexicans love refried beans? Oh no!" And I was just like, uh, "Did you tell the guy that you're Mexican?" No, uh, <laughs> I well, so my girlfriend was there. She let him know. Yeah. Uh, but he but he completed the joke and was like, and then immediately did sort of the you know the panicky, um, panicky white person shitty thing. Yeah. Doesn't really apologize. Just like sort of goes sort of mutters to themselves and then doesn't talk. Right. And then almost treats you like you're the enemy for having brought that up. Yep. But yeah, it was it was totally this like, oh yeah, this this happens a lot with with Boston sports and probably sports anywhere but like i don't know there's there's something pretty racially loaded about sports in boston and and i think maybe that's i think maybe it's because it is at the intersection of so much uh class and racial divides sure. in this city yeah like yeah because the city has a lot of forms of segregation but a lot of people end up mixed together around sports in the city. Yeah. And it becomes a really loaded issue. I remember, and this isn't baseball specific, but it has to do with sports. I remember going to see the Boston Marathon with a bunch of friends and my girlfriend at the time. And this is the, the actual stupidest thing in the world, but I, I have the clearest fucking memory of this. It was a bunch of old, like, Massachusetts, very broy kind of people, very like Catholic broy Irish, you know, Irish Catholic, just very broy white people, even if they were yeah. ladies, just broy ass broy white people. And the women were finishing up the the women runners. It was sort of down to the final stretch, and we were right there, uh, right near the finish line at a bar, and everybody was like cheering for this white woman who was like in the the top five or something and they were just like yeah i hope she wins and it was like this really fucking weird they didn't know her they didn't know any of these runners they were just automatically like let's definitely cheer on the white woman and it was like i don't know that was that was so fucked up and so indicative in my mind of like that type of of fan like that type of like kind of shitty and racist just attitude of like yeah us us versus them kind of thing and and fuck and just so completely just drink their fucking beers and like cheer on this runner because she's white i don't i don't know it's a deeply uncomfortable and fucked up thing that has always illustrated that concept to me like in in just crystallized it i guess in my mind yeah you, you you get that a lot around around sports and especially because I think it's an easy way for, uh, you know, affluent 
or you know or or you, it doesn't even have to be affluent but like uh you know it's a way for a lot of white people to have an underdog they can identify with at times as well um you know that, that's that i think is is another element like I'm 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 sort of thinking of esports here uh, to sure. an extent. Yeah, go like for it. Yeah. you see that same dynamic uh, where we'll cheer for the white person, right? And to an extent, like that that always you you always used to be able to sort of mask that by saying, well, that's because like players from Europe and North America are almost always like massive underdogs compared to players from uh, Korea and sure. increasingly China. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't yeah that's not it's, really it's, true like it's it was very yeah <laughs> like like there were some of us like you, that's the weird thing like this is why these things can be so shocking because it can also mask those differences about why people are choosing one side over the other yeah like you all think okay we're all in this because like we're just sick of uh seeing korean players like just clean house and all these things and here's you know a kid from canada who maybe has a has a chance at doing this oh here's a marathon where you know, somebody somebody from, uh, you know, the U.S. has, uh, sorry, a white person from the U.S. has a decent chance of, of winning a distance race that's, like, traditionally dominated uh, by, you know, people from, like, the Caribbean and, and sort of South Africa. Yeah, and Kenya and, and that whole region. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But what that ends up sort of masking is that some, yeah, some people are, are cheering for those reasons. And some people are just super fucking racist. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's not that they don't like dominance because they're happy to cheer uh, for, you know, say Tom Brady, right? Like, right. Tom Brady's rarely an underdog, but, you know, no, he's awesome. He's the best. Like watching Tom Brady succeed is, is a great thing. But when somebody not white ends up like succeeding a lot in the sport, suddenly it's like, well, I just want to be into the underdog. And really the sport kind of has a problem because yeah. this this other group of these these other players are being really successful. And that bothers. And somehow that, that bothers me in a way that it doesn't bother uh, bother me when Tom Brady does it. And that pretty clearly means something. Yeah. But, you know, sports kind of lets you paper that over. Yeah, it's... it's oh. I know it's a more complicated question than we were necessarily going into today with, with our... <laughs> Uh, our more chill episode, but it's... Yeah, Boston, Boston sports. There's nothing chill about Boston sports. There really isn't. There truly is not uh, a, a chill thing. There's not a chill moment. Not a chill moment. We put it that way. Oh, my God. Well, um, yeah, I suppose that will always be an ongoing thing. It's always going to be something to wrestle with. Sometimes literally, I guess. Uh, sports I, I think the thing I the thing I wonder, and I, I don't have enough experience living in other sports markets is why why does boston stand out in this regard like there's definitely franchises that i think also tend to attract some awful fans like uh you know st louis cardinals um sorry sorry cardinals fans like it, it, it's a fun place to see a game they they are generally a good team the fans also have a reputation there but it, it seems like boston are sort of is sort of renowned for this um and i just kind of wonder like is it just because Boston is like way more racist or does the racism just show more clearly than it shows in other cities? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I, my, my, 
my major experience, I suppose, as, as a baseball fan uh, has been in Boston and San Francisco. I have, I, as somebody who grew up with the Red Sox, I can't really go to Yankees games. Like, you know, it yeah. might happen at some point, but it's not, you know, that there's a, there's a bar there. I can't, I can't help that. But in San Francisco, there was a weird thing where I went to a few Giants games and really enjoyed it. And it seemed, uh, at least at the time, a few years ago, now, you know, <laughs> things have changed so City's rapidly. Fast, yeah. Things have changed so rapidly in San Francisco. This might not even be the case anymore. But in, you know, a few years ago, five or six years ago, I suppose, you know, I always felt that going to a Giants game, it, it seemed like a... Maybe I was just going with a more diverse crowd. Maybe the folks that myself and my girlfriend at the time were friends with and going to Giants games with were a more predominantly like Asian American crowd, for example. And they had things like Asian American night at the Giants stadium and they had LGBT night and things like that, that I don't recall ever going to at Fenway Park. <laughs> Again, they may have that now, but a few years ago, this seemed like, oh, this is different. This is maybe a little bit more diverse and it feels a little bit more inclusive. However, the way that people talked about, like, Oakland fans was not very nice. And there you nope. have it, folks. The racial component, once again, uh, sort of shows itself. The way people talked about uh, A's fans was bad enough, but the way people talked about Raiders fans, football-wise, oh. was like, holy Jesus. People acted as if, like, being a Raiders fan basically meant, like, being just awful in a lot of ways. And it was like... You want to maybe unpack that a little bit there, buddy? Like, <laughs> the city that's two miles away and was, you know, at least at a time predominant, uh, more racially diverse and, like, at least had, like, a very large African-American population. Now, again, of course, things are changing so much there, but there was a lot of that there, too, even though it was maybe less super obvious than it was in Boston. So... Yeah, that's that's another aspect is like towns with multiple teams in the region. Yeah. Boy, does that also just seem to default to creating some kind of divide, right? It's like, oh, the Giants historically are the respectable uh, football right, team right. in New York and Jets are for like, you know, Jersey assholes. <laughs> uh, right. And, and that's... And that's kind of the divide. And, like, really what that works out to is, you know... Who has money. Who, yeah, yeah, who's moneyed in, in the area. <laughs> um, you know, Chicago has the sort of the north side, south side divide of, uh, you know, Cubs versus White, White Sox. Mm -hmm. But that's also pretty... <laughs> historically, it's been a pretty important divide in terms of the makeup of those neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's another aspect of it. Um, sure. Not to say it, it. Not to say it's that simple, but it's definitely. It's definitely something I think. It's easy to kid yourself in other regions that those issues don't exist as much, but right. maybe there's just fewer friction points in some right. places. Right. I completely. And it's it's again it's one of those things. There's no aspect of American society that's not classist and racist, yeah. right? Sports are absolutely like everything else, especially anything entertainment and any any big money sort of industry are going to carry those aspects with them as well. And it's fucking it's not great. Also, well, Colin Kaepernick still needs a job. And yeah, that's the thing. That's yeah. I mean, it, the the NFL is just. A oh. league, and that's an entire that's an entire other conversation. Yeah, that's another. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I, I will say, 
at the same time, like, I don't think sports really engender this stuff. I think it's sports. This stuff sort of makes its way into that shared space because right. it's what people bring with them. I think most of the time what sports are providing are actually ways to sort of paper over those differences. And, and that, that, that can't be overlooked. Like it, yeah. I think one reason it's so horrifying when something like that, that incident in the outfield at Fenway happened uh, is because like it sort of breaks that illusion, but that is still a useful illusion that, you go around the city or you go around this country and that little baseball cap with the, the red B on it is like a symbol of allegiance and identity. And I see it on a lot of uh, non-white people as well. And yeah. it's just something that is very important to sort of the fabric and identity of Boston. And let's, let's people, I think believe that it lets people be reminded of the shared commonalities rather than uh, all the other divides that we encounter day to day. Yeah, absolutely. That's 100%. There's a lot of value to that. Weirdly, MLB the show yeah. does not feature racist abuse being rolled oh, at wow. you from the stands. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I've listened pretty closely, uh, but <laughs> I have not, I, I have yet to hear uh, slurs being, being called from, from the bleachers. Is it, they call that fantasy baseball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is my good joke. I hope you liked it. <laughs> it was, it was, it was beautiful. Um, but yeah, like it's, like it's, it's definitely just an all positive uh, experience in in MLB the show. Nice. Uh, it's baseball as we wish it were. Baseball, yes, exactly. Baseball as it should be. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, just the beautiful game itself, and not uh, other aspects of American society pooping their way in <laughs> well we did it danielle our, our light weekend show uh, after the move uh turned into a discussion of racism class and sports in america uh which i think has been pretty comprehensively dealt with uh, in just go. like 35 minutes uh we nailed it uh, we did there's, it. there's probably some books and shit written about this but i don't think you need those now uh yeah. you can just <laughs> you can just ask like like the top google google hit for history of racism in boston sports um definitely should be about this this episode of the podcast i i sure you know when when it comes time to it when we've had an idle weekend you know we're really really hitting the hard stuff it's all my fault because i asked you how you felt about boston sports so uh, it's it's my fault, Rob. It's it's all my fault. I, I take it. I take all the blame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, uh, move, moving right along. Should, should we dip into our mailbag or should we should we go right ahead into weekend projects? How are you feeling? Let's we, we've got I think we have an interesting letter uh, we can all touch right. on that. I don't see how we can make this about race. Uh, so let's let's hit it. I think right. I think we're on good <laughs> ground here. All right, that sounds good. <laughs> so uh, this letter comes in from Frederick from Trondheim, Trondheim, Norway. I, I apologize if I if I uh, misspoke there. Trondheim, Norway. Frederick writes, Rob, your repeated praises of Occupied have spawned a lingering sense of annoyed resentment in me because I haven't had a chance to see it. But I I do actually have a point for discussion. Thing is, I have heard about Occupert from fellow, fellow Norwegians. I'm uh, editorializing here. I'm assuming Occupert is the Norwegian uh, spelling of Occupied. And Occupied is a series that we have talked about on this show about basically uh, Russia occupying Norway 
uh, by in way a world of where the U.S. has withdrawn from global responsibility. Yes, that is and... a very important part. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Okay, a uh, very far-fetched premise. Oh yeah, it's so so wildly uh, speculative. I can't even believe that it happened in 2018. Um, anyway, uh, I will stop editorializing here. Back to the letter. But it has not been unanimously praised. On the contrary, most people seem to lambast it for stiff acting and clunky dialogue. The premise is indeed intriguing, however, and I look forward to checking it out for myself. Now, this divide in opinion has made me think about how dramatic acting translates across language barriers and how much of the nuance gets lost in translation. This is something we Norwegians are very used to dealing with, since films and shows are always shown in their original language. For English language films, I rarely have trouble following the dialogue. But uh, does not being a native speaker help mask some jagged acting edges? With Norway mainly being an importer of foreign media products, this is a rare golden opportunity to turn the tables on this question, and I'd appreciate hearing your takes on the issue. Also, I'm assuming uh, you've seen Occupied in its original language. If not, I will silently judge you, unless dubbed is the only option, in which case you have my sympathies. Cheers, Frederick. Well, the good news is I think a third of the show is in English. Uh, so, like, a dubbed version would have been really, really weird. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so I think this is interesting because, for me, the performances really worked in that show, but it occurs to me, I have no freaking clue if they were actually good performances. Like, certainly, what we know about the characters and their internal struggles always seemed pretty well reflected uh, you know, by their physical performance. But at the same time, it's a show about a lot of like bureaucratic functionaries and stuff yeah. trying to like wrestle with this stuff. And a lot of people sort of hiding behind a reserve of uh, emotion uh, of a, a, a reserve of professionalism uh, and, and detachment. And so the nuances of those performances are going to be completely lost. And what I'm just going to read into it is what the plot is telling me is actually happening and going on inside these characters if these are poor performances, um, I am not actually placed to know. And it, 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 the thing I like about this letter is it's a weird aspect of enjoying a lot of foreign media where yeah. you, you even develop preferences about certain actors and performances. But you may not actually be able to, you know what I mean? You, you can't yeah. actually assess what they're trying to do. Right. Absolutely. Um I remember being in film school and watching uh, a lot of sort of, you know, student-made foreign films. Uh, you know, very, very sort of low-budget uh, films from, from all over the place. A lot of European films, but also a lot of films from, from India and the subcontinent. And it just sort of all over. It was, it was something that, you know, I had professors who had taught sort of all over the world. And they would bring stuff in. And I kind of wouldn't know if the acting was any good. I remember one film in particular, I think it was, it was Malaysian. And I, I just had no, because the language is something I'm not familiar with. And I'm not familiar with, you know, the culture and sort of the practices. And there were child actors in it. And so I had no idea, you know, if this kid was, was, was stilted or, or, or maybe not natural in the performance. It worked for me, but somebody from that culture might have been like, well this is my cousin Timmy and he sucks, you know, like it just could have been, you know, <laughs> yeah. it could have been a completely, you know, as if I took a camera and asked a young relative to, to go around and play in the snow or something, you know, whatever it was and said, you know, don't look at the camera, Timmy. And <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I have no basis for that. So this is a really, really good and interesting question. Well, and then like, what is, what is sort of the standard 
for performance in that culture or, or right. maybe even just in this type of film. Like, you know, one of the, like, you know, just as an example, um, so watching like Kurosawa movies. Yeah. Uh, but particularly like sort of his, his samurai films. Yeah. Um, those tend to be pretty amped up in terms of the expressiveness of the performance. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, they're very theatrical films uh, in that regard. And his modern post-war work, uh, sort of set in modern Japan, I don't think really shares that quite as much. It's, it's more restrained. But I fundamentally, like, I don't know in, uh, you know, in Seven Samurai, for instance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm who is playing it up too much because to me it all seems kind of heightened and exaggerated uh and partly that's also just the subject matter (laughs) there's not there's nothing that isn't heightened about dudes running around with katanas yeah uh and like battling in the streets of this village it's pretty dramatic (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so like you know I like I know I like uh, Mifune, but that's because I've seen him actually like act in a couple like English language things, and he's great there too. Like I, I can like I know what he's doing, but in terms of a lot of the other regulars that pop up in 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 those movies, I just don't have the the broader context, nor do I really understand uh, the traditions they're 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 acting in. So it's it's a really weird thing to assess, but. Maybe what I like about it is it does leave you more, maybe more open-minded. Yes. Because then you're not doing that thing that you're often doing in, like in, in English language films where you're able to really scrutinize the performance and, yeah. you know, are they bringing off all the nuances you think should be there? Whereas those, for, like the, those foreign indies that you're describing, it makes it really easy to sort of adopt the guise of uh, just sort of an open-minded traveler where, you know, just tell me a story. Yeah. And I don't know any better, so I'm just going to take for granted what, what I'm seeing here. Yeah, it, it's... I have a, a related anecdote uh, to this, and that actually has to do with anime. And a uh, friend of the show, Amanda, uh, and Joel actually explained something to me that I had no idea about. So uh, this is something I know you had a, a comment about, and it was the bike anime. And it was about the guy who looks like a weird demon with his tongue and, and all this stuff. Yeah. I had no context for this. But at one point, in the very recent past, Joel and Amanda sort of explained to me that, oh, that's not like the literal thing that's happening in that moment. This is an exaggerated style. You know, the guy with the tongue out and the sweat and he looks all fucked up and like a demon or whatever. That's just showing the intensity of that moment in the in the sort of real life Whatever, in, in the fiction, he doesn't look like that. He looks like a normal human being. But he's trying so hard, and he's working so hard, and it's so intense. And this art style, this this sort of exaggerated style, is just to show you the emotion of that moment, that intensity of that moment. And just understanding that, because I, I don't fucking know. I didn't have much exposure to this 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 type of, of media before. Just sort of knowing that, I was like, oh... <laughs> This makes so much more sense now. Okay, it's a dramatic moment of doing this or a dramatic moment of doing that, but it's not literally demon face with a demon tongue. Things made a lot more sense to me once somebody with a little bit of context just sort of 
saw my confusion and was able to like explain that out. And now I, I feel like I enjoy that show a lot more because <laughs> I, I know it's like, oh, okay, here's what's happening in quote unquote reality. And here's what it feels like in their heads. So. That is that is really interesting. I wish uh, Amanda and Joel had ever told me that rather than just sending me increasingly <laughs> fucked up like freeze frames from that show because oh uh, they knew it was one of my buttons. Yeah, um, you know they had an opportunity to educate, but instead they just sort of filled my inbox with objects of revulsion. <laughs> That's really good, actually. That's really uh, good. <laughs> so, uh, that that does that does help me unpack. So related to this though, yeah, uh, is. It also makes it hard for me to assess, like, what is a good example. Well, not only of translation, because, like, a lot of translation is about sort of alighting certain things, but preserving, like, the like the, the correct meaning and inflection of yeah. something without necessarily being literal. Uh, but regarding, like, dubs uh, is where it gets really... In general, I'm against them. But what I've always sort of wondered is that a lot of those, uh, like, dubs of, you know, particularly of anime... Yeah a lot of the voice acting tends to be super shitty. Sure. Um, you know, like gruff, uh, you know, gruff bruiser type dudes tend, tend to be like super, you know, cranked up way past 11. Oh yeah. Uh, like, yeah. like they would be tough to swallow even if they were in predator, for instance. Right. Like, it's right. Just, it, it's, it's that heightened. And what I always sort of wondered is like, so did the companies making these dubs just like totally suck at their jobs. <laughs> Or were they correctly imparting the characterizations that a Japanese speaker would hear in these in these shows and movies? Yeah, I've never I've, I've I've never been sure. That's a very good question. We will need to have Amanda on the show again, I think, to uh, to get. <laughs> I feel like we'll have like an ask ask me about anime hour at some point in life because it's so it's so interesting uh, to me. I mean that's. That's such a fair question, and I, I don't know the answer to it. So, yeah. Ugh. yeah good, good letter, Frederick. This, this definitely is a, a topic I'm really interested in. You know, we, we, we end up, like, focusing a lot on anime and, and particularly, like, uh, you know, Japanese films. Yeah. Because that's probably what we encounter the most, where we just do not have the cultural frame of reference. But yeah. I'm not like I feel more confident in my ability to assess like performances in like French Italian. Sure. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm justified in my belief that I can gauge a performance in, you know, sort of those Western European languages, or if if that's just the subject matter seems like is often a little more familiar, um, and the yeah. conventions are maybe a little more familiar. Well, I mean. So, I mean, for me, I, I haven't spent much time in Italy, but I, I you know, that's like a, a good chunk of my family background is from there. And so I, I've spent a little bit of time there. I learned the language. My grandmother spoke it growing up. So, like, there's there's a familiarity in that, I think. Like, there's an actual, like, family familiarity with some you yeah. know, certain, certain, obviously not every Western European nation, but the ones that I actually have, like, a, a connection to or, or spent any time there or something like that. Um, versus 
something that that you just have a lot less exposure to. And also I grew up, not grew up, but you know, as a as a film student, as a college kid, as a as even as a high school kid when I started becoming interested in film, of course I I watched a lot of the, you know, what's popular to watch is a lot of western european films. I watched a lot of french new wave, I watched a lot of uh the italian neoclassical stuff. I I you know, sort of formed as an adult and whose opinions about movies were partially formed by that sort of thing. And less so, you know, I certainly watched Seven Samurai. I certainly watched Kurosawa movies as well, but less so than, than Western European movies. And that's, I think that's partially also because <laughs> our culture is pretty Eurocentric still in a lot of ways. Uh, so that seems to, that seems to track for me, but I don't think that's, just, you know, necessarily a good thing uh, by any means. Yeah. <laughs> It it definitely helps like when I, I suspect I'd be bad at like really gauging uh personal dramas, but that also tends to not be the sort of stuff that really translates over like that doesn't get as much play. Like right. I don't watch a lot of like like Russian cinema. Sure. But Tarkovsky films tend to be like high concept and strange enough that what you're watching is not necessarily it's coming from a certain cultural cultural context but what you're also seeing is like just humans wrestling with the unknowable and the strange and the bizarre and kind of like you don't need to you don't really need the trend you don't need to be able to understand the performance as well because you're just kind of able to identify with any person in like in that situation and and the strangeness of it Yes, I totally agree. And I was going to say, yeah, like Kurosawa and Tarkovsky are probably the two of the directors I've seen the most of their work that are completely outside of that Western context or, or did at the time. Now, it's less true now, but you know, at the time when I was 21 and seeking things out, that's those are the ones that sort of feel yeah. like they were you know, popular in certain ways or, or talked about a lot more. So yeah. I just, I have to, so this is completely off topic. Go for it. Um, but speaking of the language of film. Yeah. And things not needing translation. That's a course I'm teaching so, right now. It's called the language of film. <laughs> Go um, on. <laughs> so, you know, there's some purists that are like, you know, really, you should be able to watch a movie without any dialogue at all. And sort sure. of parse what's happening. Like, just it's such a visual medium. Uh, it's it's sort of the equivalent of everything should be done through gameplay mechanics in the shooting right. stories. Right. Uh, but <laughs> so I was watching over somebody's shoulder on my flight the opening of Triple X: The Return of Xander Cage. Oh, good. <laughs> and as nearly as I can tell, like <laughs> it looks like the most rancid shit. But <laughs> the thing that I could not believe was there's this extended scene of <laughs> Vin Diesel <laughs> up in the Andes somewhere, I think. Um, he's up on like a cell phone tower or, or some sort of satellite communications tower and he jumps off and then goes like skiing down a mountain uh, on dirt trails uh, and then hops on a skateboard and basically, Marty McFly's his way for the next like 10, 15 minutes. Jesus Christ. And yeah. literally, all the people of the Andes, all of them, just beam with delight as he goes like sailing past them at speed, like chased by the cops. Like, wow. it is, it is unreal how like Western Savior, the opening 
of that movie is. Like, I swear to God, like, literally at any moment, I was like, okay, he's gonna, there's gonna be like a Coca Cola at the end of this commercial or something. Like, this is gonna end with him like handing a Pepsi uh, to a cop, oh and like, and, and suddenly like inequality is solved. Uh, I have no idea, but God. it was amazing because it was just like this fetishization of like um latin american like poverty and indigenous culture and they're all just such simple good people just so amused by the the kind-hearted american who <laughs> at the end ugh, jesus take the wheel danielle <laughs> xander the, take the wheel <laughs> at the end of this fucking sequence <laughs> the end of the sequence he skateboards into a bar. No. <laughs> goes over the television. Adjusts something on the television. So the soccer match can appear in all the TVs on the village. Oh. The, and the entire village erupts in cheers. Wow. And then, and then we are not done. We've not put the cherry oh on the Sunday. Oh my we have God. not. We haven't finished. We have not finished our our masterpiece <laughs> because it appears there has to be a little boy. No, <laughs> who comes <laughs> up to Xander Cage and is like, Xander, you have brought the world to us. No, <laughs> you said you would do it, and I didn't believe you, but you did it. No. You brought the whole world to us, and then he crouches down. Touches the little boy over his heart. And it's like, the world was inside you all along. (laughs) And then he gets laid. And then he gets laid. By someone who does not look like she's in any kind of third world impoverished village. Like, she just came from her modeling shoot. (laughs) Uh, And so, like, his reward for his decency in bringing these good, <sighs> honest people their fucking football the game. The beauty of soccer, yeah. Is is the, the, the beauty of the village. Um, it comes to his service. <laughs> like, oh my fucking god. And he's gone the next morning. <laughs> and she wakes up. <laughs> and he left his triple X branded skateboard no! in the house. <laughs> and she's delighted. She's like, oh, thank god. <laughs> Have this to remember him by. <laughs> oh, when I have his 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 his, his child nine months later, they'll inherit the skateboard. <laughs> it was unreal. And they'll use that to kick in a goal at the next soccer game. <laughs> Holy Christ. That's real. Somebody shot that and put it in a movie. Somebody sure did. It was it was breathtaking. Oh. I cannot like it made me uh it pretty much guaranteed I'll never see the rest of that movie. Uh, yeah. but it was it was it was magnificent and I think really illustrated something about uh appreciating other cultures through, <laughs> uh, through film. Uh some things, you know, you don't you don't need translation before you don't need to hear anything. Yeah, he spoke the universal language of awesome. Yes. So yes. it'll be fine. Yes. <laughs> I sort of want that to be your weekend project. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take a knee. I think that's that's my weekend project is the first 25 minutes of Triple X: The Return of Xander Cage. Holy shit! I can't top that. There's nothing I can say.
way that would top that. Well, that's that's it. it is the greatest movie and the greatest story ever told. I mean, you know, that's pretty good. Oh, God. Wow. No, I really, I can't. I mean, not that the point of, of Idle Weekend is not to top each other. That would be a very crappy podcast. Um, the, the, you know, we're, we're chill here. I just but feel you like. you want to go out on a high note. I just want to go out on a high note. You know what? That's it. That's fucking right. it. That's my weekend project too. Is you <laughs> telling me that story from this movie? That's it. That's what we're doing. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, oh, Rob. Right. On that note, <laughs> I, let me pull up the script so I don't blow that line like I oh, always do. There you go. Do. There you go. Oh god. On that. On that beautiful note, Rob. Which I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you told us that story. That's a really beautiful story. And on that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate your listening uh, to our, our musings. And uh, if, you could, if you could tell a friend... You know, tell your buddy who looks like Xander Cage. Tell your your mysterious tell stranger. All the good people of the village. <laughs> yeah, the mysterious stranger who comes into your village, and also all the good people of your village, and also the young boy who was really excited about soccer coming to the village. <laughs> tell them all about Idle Weekend. It really does help us out so much. Uh, word of mouth is really how we grow. And also, if you could take a second and be as awesome as Xander Cage, and uh, you know, write us a little review on iTunes. That would also be so wonderful. We really do appreciate it, and it really does help us out so much. So, for Rob Zachney and Xander Cage, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Mm-hmm.